Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovers Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. By the way, still the Home Office Edition. A couple of months ago, I reached out to David Horowitz and asked him if he would like to talk to me about his work around the FDA guidance on hand sanitizers. I know it sounds a bit niche, but as a product that is now an essential part of our daily routines, it's quite a complex product, which is not easy to get on the market. In addition to that, we talked a bit about his work in the field of over-the-counter products. In conclusion, it was a super interesting conversation about David's practice. As always, I'm keeping the intro short since we're going to hear each other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk The Cure. Hi, David. Thank you for joining me today. And before we dive into our topic, which I already introduced in the introduction, could you please talk a little bit about yourself and what you do, where you work in, where is your office and what is your practice? That would be really helpful to kick it off, to understand where you're coming from. Sure. So first, Julius, thanks for having me on the podcast today. I'm a partner in Washington in the pharmaceutical and biotech practice group. And I focus on FDA regulatory policy and compliance issues for, for pharmaceuticals. And so I do import export issues, current good manufacturing practice, pharmacy issues, and especially over-the-counter drug regulation, which is the subject of today's discussion. Don't spoil it. I wanted to tell the story. <laughs> so when I, when I reach out to David and ask him if he would like to do uh, an episode with me, he immediately came up with the idea that he wanted to talk about hand sanitizers. And hand sanitizers for me is, especially during the pandemic, is the product you daily use and not really think about it. And I thought, okay, hand sanitizers. That's going to be interesting. But then he went into detail and I thought this is really something to learn about because we, this is a daily usable product and we use it constantly, but we don't think about what went into this and what, how much of a guidance was read through before the product even hit the market. <laughs> so David, could you give us a quick overview about the development and maybe the kind of the, the issue that went around it? And then I would really like to learn more about the work you actually have done with the clients on that topic. Sure. So at, at FDA, hand sanitizers are regulated as drug products because they meet the definition of a drug. They're intended to affect the structure or function of the body by killing bacteria on the, the surface of, of the hand. There are other surface disinfectants, like things that kill bacteria or maybe viruses on a countertop in your kitchen. We're not going to drop any names, but everybody knows what we're talking about. <laughs> but, the, but those are regulated not by FDA and not mm -hmm. as drugs. They're in the United States, they're regulated by the EPA. But, but these products, they're regulated as drugs. They don't need a prescription, right? So there's a different system in the U.S. for over-the-counter drugs. And in particular, uh, some of these products don't require a full new drug application. Historically, they've been allowed to market their products based on these regulations that FDA has issued known as the OTC monograph system. 
Okay. And is there a difference when you just in the definition of these OTC with different claims you have for the products you put out? Yes, absolutely. In order to market an OTC monograph product without getting a whole FDA approval of a new drug application, you're very limited in the ingredients you can use and the claims. So you can't, for example, for a hand sanitizer product, make specific claims that this product prevents the transmission or even kills COVID-19 or the COVID-19 virus, even though everybody knows and everybody's using the products for exactly that purpose. So this is a perfect segue. You already told me that the regulatory environment definitely changed and the guidance from FDA changed. From We can just do a pre-COVID and a COVID era regarding hand sanitizers. So give, can you give us a little bit of an overview what changed? So the main thing that, that changed um, after COVID hit is that there was very quickly a shortage of hand sanitizers uh, that were available and, and a high demand and a recognition by FDA and other health authorities that uh, it was important to have hand sanitizers um, as, as part of increased hand hygiene to fight the virus. I think we should start and talk a little bit about your work. I guess with this shortage, which came along with the COVID pandemic, a lot of players came into the market, which are not traditionally companies that are involved with OTC drugs. So, and in the conversation we had before, you already mentioned that you received work from companies which are not traditionally in that market. And obviously it's a complete new play field and you were able to guide them through that. So what were the questions that were raised, especially from those clients? The, the goal, uh, FDA put out this guidance trying to encourage companies that weren't the traditional drug manufacturers who were making these products to increase the supply. And some of the companies that came to us were food and beverage companies. So they knew a little bit about FDA from the food side. But they didn't really know anything about FDA and how drugs uh, are regulated. And it's actually quite different. But they had some questions about interpreting the FDA guidance that would allow them to jump into the production of hand sanitizer. So the, the guidance is very prescriptive and in some respects helpful because it tells a company that's never done this before Here's exactly what you'd have to do if you want to do it legally. And in exchange for that, there's certain other requirements that the drug manufacturers that have making, been making these products for, for years, you won't have to follow those requirements. For example, the requirements, very onerous requirements relating to current good manufacturing practice, which I'll come back to. But there were still some questions from the food and beverage clients, especially about what, what the guidance meant and whether it could be incorporated into the food production environment. So, for example, the formula required that the alcohol be denatured, that a denaturing ingredient be added so no one could drink it. Because believe it or not, there are a high increasing rate of child poisonings associated with the broader use of hand sanitizer product. Yeah. 
But with regard to the denaturing, the, the ingredients that FDA had initially proposed to allow are the kinds of ingredients that food facilities would never want in their facilities for fear that it could cross-contaminate their food. Yeah. Um, and that, that was a real barrier. And so ultimately, we worked with FDA and FDA came back with some additional ingredients that would work in a food facility, but could still be adequate denaturants. Interesting. I raised the question or I, I was wondering a bit about, you told me that there was guidance and FDA was really keen on motivating non-medical or OTC provider to put product out. But the guidance in itself was cryptic and was a little bit complicated. So that was not as easy to just start producing product to get onto the market. Other things that were um, put into the way of getting it out, labeling, for example, which immediately comes to my mind or... Another note I had was expiration dates, for example. All these things which comes is easy for us as a consumer, but on the other hand, as a producer, obviously, are hurdles to, um, to conquer. Yeah, so FDA put out the guidance to try to make it easy, right? So they gave a template labeling, and they said that if you follow the formula exactly, you don't have to worry about expiration dating and all the complicated studies that are necessary to support an expiration date. So, you know, that part was, was relatively easy if a company was willing and able to limit themselves to the uh, strict requirements of the guidance. So, for example... If you wanted to make a product that was a gel or a foam, yeah, that wouldn't work under the guidance because you'd have to add additional ingredients and deviate from the formula. And that led some companies to say, for, forget it, we're, we're not going to try to follow the guidance. And some of them said, well, let's try to do it the way the traditional drug manufacturers made hand sanitizers, because there is a lawful pathway to make the gel and foam products. Yeah. But, but you have, there are additional and more complicated regulatory requirements that will apply to you, such as you mentioned expiration dates and complications with labeling. The labeling regs for OTC drugs are very specific and complicated. And I'm pretty sure that not every product is fully produced in the U.S. So I'm pretty sure that parts of the ingredients are coming from Asia, potentially. So importing and as well as kind of supply chain is an additional issue, right? Yeah, yeah. So we worked with some clients from other countries uh, around the world um, and English might not be their first language and they may not be experienced with FDA regulation and, and just getting the, the labeling to look exactly right and to have all the necessary information. In, in the U.S., we have this very well-defined format on all OTC products, drug facts, the drug facts label on all products. And the regulations specify the size of the font and the, the width of the lines separating the information. Um, sorry so, sorry for a, laughing. Yeah, it's a, I thought we, we as Germans are really bureaucratic. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, we, the American bureaucracy can rival even the Germans. Yeah. 
it's another takeaway from me today. <laughs> yes, yes. So, but getting back to your point, um, so yeah. we had some foreign companies, and one of the challenges for them, of course, was getting the labeling exactly right. But we also helped them with importing the products, and we have colleagues uh, here in in the U.S. office, including Ed Fishman, who helped us with the requirements for transportation and labeling of the actual cartons. There are a whole other set of regulations because alcohol is flammable. And so there are particular requirements for transporting it within the United States. And then we we had um, some companies like alcohol beverage manufacturers who were able to supply the U.S. market and also wanted to export it. And so we, we called on our colleagues abroad. We could help them export it out of the United States, but then they needed help importing it into the other countries. And so we had help from certain colleagues, including Jane Summerfield in the UK and Ernesto Algaba in Mexico, who helped us on import-export questions involving those and other countries. I was telling a quick story about an alcohol beverage supplier who wanted to um, use his alcohol he would normally use to produce his own products to provide hand sanitizers for his employees. And in Germany, that it appeared that it's no problem at all. But you raised immediately your concerns that it's not, it wouldn't be possible in the US to do similar. Just to protect your own employees with the product you already have in-house, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah, we worked with a few clients who were frustrated when FDA made it clear that the same guidance would apply or the same regulations would apply, even if you're not selling the, the product in the U.S. market, even if you're just using it for your employees at the workplace. And we actually spoke to FDA, to the, the head person who's working on this, and she said, like, you know, there's... There's really an open system here when these products don't require a, a prescription. And, and she said, for example, people, if they didn't have enough at home, would take it home and then their kids could be exposed to it. So she mm -hmm. felt very strongly that the same requirements, for example, to denature the alcohol yeah. um, would apply for a product that wasn't intended to be sold and used only in the workplace. What I find interesting, how long took the process, especially regarding the communication with FDA, based on the amount of work they're facing right now with medical, with all the medical devices, all the tests which are coming to the markets, as well as the situation around vaccines. How long did this process take? Because with all the conversation I had with the colleagues in the US, they said it was, it took quite a while because FDA is just swamped with work right now. Yeah. Well, that, that is absolutely correct. But they really jumped on this very quickly and they took advantage of some, you know, shortcuts in the administrative procedure that allowed them to put out a final guidance right away in March. They just popped it out there saying, like, we know there's a shortage. We know there's people who can help. Here's how we're going to make it easy. Here's some sample. You just use this formula, use this labeling, make sure the ingredients meet these quality standards, and we're, we're good to go. It seemed really easy. However, they weren't familiar with really the needs and regula regulating this non-drug-producing 
sector of the industry. Yeah. So first, the industry was confused. What do you want? What are you talking about? Can we do this? Can we do that? <laughs> and there are certain things that were incompatible. So FDA has revised the guidance approximately five times since they issued it in March. Wow. Okay. So it's one of those things where it's a learning process for, for FDA as well as the new industry trying to comply with the guidance. And obviously they were able to sell a lot of product. And I'm pretty sure that a couple of our clients are interesting in staying into in that market because they realized, okay, we are able to make some profit. Are these guidances, this good to go guidance, I would say in brackets, are they going, are they able to continue their work or do they have to apply to the actual guidance, which was pre-COVID after yeah, um, that's a, they that's decide a good... to enter the market and, and finally as a producer for this kind of product? Yeah, that's a good question because some of the, um, the folks who entered the market and complied with the guidance and used the exact formula, they discovered that this is a pretty good business and they'd like to continue in, in the business and perhaps expand. But two things. One, the guidance limits the formula, right? So you can't make gels and, and foams. And also the guidance on its face is called a temporary policy. And it, it, FDA is going to withdraw that guidance, that regulatory pathway, if you will, mm -hmm. when the COVID-19 emergency is over, whenever that may be. But you can imagine the demand for hand sanitizer is likely to continue to some degree, even after people are worried about COVID-19. And so the alternative for companies that want to continue or expand in this business is the monograph. And the monograph limits the claims and the ingredients, but it has some very rigorous and challenging regulations associated with it in particular with regard to manufacturing the product. Because the same manufacturing quality regulations that are used to make like a sterile injectable drug apply mm -hmm. to making a hand sanitizer. That's a pushback or a kind of... <laughs> it's, Sorry, it's, that it's will more anything. likely kind of not play into the hands of people who already entered the market. It's going to be hard for them. Some of them will successfully make the transition. Some of them are, you know, big companies that have the resources and the interest to, to comply with FDA's full CGMP, that's uh, current good manufacturing practice requirements. Some of the smaller companies will, will maybe try to hang on as long as they can until FDA ultimately pushes them out of the market. I love to kind of look into the glass bowl and upcoming issue because I'm pretty sure that in the hand the field of hand sanitizing, everyone who would who was planning to enter the market and get product out is is going. So what's next? What's coming next? What's coming? What's on your desk now? <laughs> Aside from ongoing hand sanitizing business, but I'm pretty sure that uh, there are other things on the horizon uh, which keeps you busy, right? There's all kinds of, of issues in, in my practice relating to 
emergency use authorizations and pharmacy compounding. But this hand sanitizer business is is morphing and continuing to, to provide interesting questions as well as companies are making the adjustment and becoming drug manufacturers. Uh, we're able to help them with the CGMP requirements. We've been able to help them with understanding the state requirements for distributors and wholesalers of OTC drugs. There are licensure requirements that are applicable. And since some hand sanitizer in the U.S. coming from Mexico has been contaminated with methanol, it's become increasingly important um, for our clients to have the proper purity testing to ensure that their products don't have methanol. And if they do to, you know, recall them or work with FDA to address the import issues. And if they are contaminated or have that, they need, is there a restriction of how many you are allowed to buy over the counter based on the fact that you could reuse them for other purposes? If the product has methanol, it is adulterated and not permitted on, on, oh, okay. on to be used in the, in the U.S. market. So oh, okay. it was it was an impurity that was detected first in some product from Mexico, but it's a big problem in the United States in terms of a large number of hand sanitizers that have been determined to contain methanol, which is dangerous toxin and. Surprisingly, some people still do drink hand sanitizer, perhaps as a, a substitute, those with substance abuse problems, a substitute for alcohol. And a couple of people have died in, in the United States as a result of, of that. But it's also a toxin that can be absorbed through the skin. I really would like to come back a little bit about in the kind of the glass bowl. So clients who were normally in the consumer sector, for example, and now branching out, providing over-the-counter product in hand sanitizers, are they actually thinking about branching out more and creating other products in, of that kind? For example, comes immediately to my uh, wipes, for example, which I'm pretty sure is a different animal. So wipes are a very similar animal, believe it or not. So FDA regulates just like as drugs. If you put the, the sanitizing ingredients that might go in your hand sanitizer that you rub on your hand, alcohol or benzoconium chloride, they could be put on a wipe. And so there are certain products marketed as antiseptic or antibacterial wipes. And we've worked with them in exactly the same way. However, There are certain products that are on the market, which may even contain alcohol or benzoconium chloride, that are marketed as cosmetics. And they're allowed to do that in the U.S. regulatory system if they mm -hmm. don't make any claims, claims. about antiseptic or antibacterial yeah. and certainly nothing about COVID. If they market them just for cleanliness and for, for, for cleaning purposes. Because th that was a question I really wanted to ask you because one of the biggest producers in the US, I'm not going to na do name calling, but announced that they have a heavy shortage till 21. And I was like, there is, a, there is definitely an open market. And I was like, okay, when people already started to make hand sanitizers, you sh maybe should think about branching out and entering 
that product as well and creating that product as well. Well, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, and the cosmetics, they're not regulated um, by FDA in the same way, so they don't have to comply with current good manufacturing practice requirements. It's a much looser regulatory standard. So if they're, if they're willing not to claim uh, antiseptic or antibacterial or anything like that, a lot of consumers sort of are still have a need for for cleaning products and and wet wipes and and may be glad to have ones that have ingredients that they know have these properties but from a sanitizing perspective there are separation between hand sanitizing and for example sur surface disinfectants right was there a, was just the the guidance just focused on the hand sanitizing and creating these kind of products or was it more broad and say, okay, we can, we have an opening for surface disinfectants, for example, as well, because that was a high demand, even in private households, people wiping everything and disinfecting everything from packages to their groceries, bringing <laughs> brought home. It wasn't as heavy here, but in the US, I read and saw a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I have a bureaucratic answer for you and a slightly less bureaucratic answer. Um, okay. Uh, so the bureaucratic answer is the surface dis disinfectants are not drugs under the law. And so they are regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency, EPA. And so the only guidance that FDA issued to encourage production in this, in this area was specifically for hand sanitizers. And the guidance only addressed the kind that you put on your hand and rub them together. The guidance did not address the wipes, the hand sanitizing or antibacterial wipes. Those mm -hmm. can still be marketed, but they have to comply with the more rigorous monograph and GMP requirements. You wouldn't think about, about the complexity of these kind of products, which is just uh, over the counter, just shopping groceries and you see them and you just take them, which is pretty fascinating for me. Maybe it's a little bit nerdish kind of. To <laughs> well, um, I think it's, it's super interesting to learn about, uh, the, especially the environment now and the changes that obviously coming or get growing into that environment. I hope we have some regulatory nerds who are who are listening. Um, it, it is complicated and and sometimes seemingly arbitrary because you know the, the the regulatory puzzle has been put together over over many years, and different agencies have worked together to try to fill the gaps as they are identified, as the risks are identified, to make sure there's a regulatory system, and they've tried to avoid duplication where possible. Right. So where yeah. FDA is regulating the hand sanitizer, we don't really also need EPA to, to impose their regulation and, and vice versa. That's why we need a Hogan Lovell's regulatory team to, to decipher all the regulatory complications. And, and I really do think that's that's something we and Hogan Lovell's do better than than any other law firm, which is integrating and understanding the regulatory complexity with the business and the other legal needs that a company may have. Before we head out, I have one question which came to my mind, since you are so active in the OTC environment. What about all the other products? 
which were on the line, especially pre-COVID and now during the whole COVID situation, I would imagine that everyone else has to set back and wait before till FDA has more capacity left to, to move forward on their products. Or is this still going and people can kind of develop their product and move forward with the development and ideally come to the market at some point? So for prescription drugs, the system really is, is continuing pretty at a pretty strong pace. And that's because yeah. it, they have separate funding under their user fee legislation to, to keep that going. And, and FDA has, has really, I think, been pretty strong. In the over-the-counter drug regulation space, that historically, it's been very underfunded at FDA. And they have this new legislation that was passed that they have to implement. And so that's, that's going to take them a long time. And COVID has certainly set them back. They're so busy with the alcohol, hand sanitizer, methanol issues and other things that they're, that it's difficult for them to quickly move forward in implementing this new, more streamlined regulation, which we hope will provide for opportunities for greater innovation in the OTC drug space. But we think it's going to be probably at least a couple of years before we see the significant progress in, in that area. Wow. Not really promising for somebody who's in the OTC world. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think people in the OTC world are used to, in the U.S., it's been very stable, but uh, stagnant as well. There okay. haven't been new ingredients, and, and it's an area where the European markets and Asian markets have seen much more innovation in the OTC space. The U.S. Uh, OTC market ha has been very limited, and okay. um, the new legislation will help, but it's going to take time. Sorry for branching out there. Um, really Slides. quick, because I was just curious to ask that. <laughs> David, so thank you very much for this conversation. I was super interesting to learn a bit but more about the situation in the US around the hand sanitizing business. Is there something else or you, you want to add something before we head out? No, I think uh, we, we covered some good topics um, and I, I'm look, looking forward to continuing to work with clients who bring new and interesting problems in this area. All right, David. Thank you very much for taking the time today. And yeah, I'm pretty sure we are going to meet again on that platform. Thank you. Sounds great. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Tina and or Jeff, I'll link the bios in the description below. If you don't want to miss any new episodes and you haven't subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform. We are going to hear each other in about two weeks, so thank you for tuning in and we're looking forward to have you back when we're talking The Cure.